Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing biblical slavery. Back when I was in high school, losing my faith, the slavery in the Bible inspired the very first skeptical, critical thoughts I had about the legitimacy of the Bible as a moral guide and the goodness of God. After all, slavery sure seems like it's wrong, so you wouldn't expect anything but an unequivocal condemnation of slavery in a book that's supposed to be morally perfect, right? Christians will point to this or that passage that seems to be regulating slavery and doesn't merely tell slaves that they need to be obedient, but nowhere will you ever come across an unambiguous condemnation of owning another person as property. It's not there. You know how easy it is for me to say the words, slavery is wrong? God never did that once in his perfect and rather lengthy book. So you can point to progressive verses about not beating your slaves to death, But you will never find anything resembling the words, slavery is morally wrong, anywhere in the Holy Bible. So what I wanted to do was uh, talk or defend against uh, claims that the Bible is in favor of slavery. Have you got a Bible handy? (laughs) Uh, Because I do. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. Quote, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service or men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. If you had advice for slaves, would it include being submissive and obedient? Not only are they to behave obediently, they're not even allowed to be insincere in their devotion to their master. Their thoughts and feelings about their slavery should be positive. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-2 through two. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them. End quote. Do you think slave owners are, quote, worthy of all honor? If you don't, I guess you're not getting your morality from the Bible. It's true that Jesus didn't explicitly condone slavery, but he also did not condemn it. He even brought it up in his parables, and slavery is just taken as a matter of course. What's also taken as a matter of course in his parables, in Matthew and Luke, is that when the slave knows the will of the master and doesn't carry it out, he will be savagely beaten and even cut to pieces. Jesus brings all this up on his own accord and doesn't say a bad word about it. The subject of brutal slavery comes up, and Jesus does not take the opportunity to say, Oh yeah, and slavery is morally wrong, by the way. God did say to refrain from beating your slaves to death, but in retrospect that wasn't as clear as we thought it was at the time. We were trying to say that slavery is unequivocally morally wrong. Don't you think the being who invented language itself would be a better communicator? If that's what he meant to say, don't you think it would be perfectly clear? Wouldn't there be one sentence in the Bible that makes it obvious? I guess the best he could do is Exodus 21.20, which does mandate punishment for a master who kills a slave. But the very next verse says, quote, 
If the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. End quote. Let me just repeat that from Exodus 21, 21. For the slave is the owner's property. If that wasn't clear enough, that we're talking about owning property here, in Exodus 21, verse 4, it says, quote, If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, her children shall belong to her master. End quote. You can be born into slavery. You can also inherit slaves, just like you'd inherit any other property. Leviticus 25.44-46 Quote, Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born into your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property, and can make them slaves for life. End quote. That was from the mouth of God, by the way. He was on Mount Sinai speaking with Moses. God did not say, owning human beings as property is always morally wrong, whether they're a member of your tribe or not. He did say, in his infinite wisdom, that we can take lifelong slaves who can be inherited as property. This is, this is the part that I think that a simplistic understanding of how revelation interacts with human behavior is... Uh, is Wouldn't it be a better book if you could be, just take out that one passage? Okay, it would be better. So it's... So, <laughs> So I think that I think that you're so number one, the answer is that the Talmudic tradition largely does take out that passage. I mean, this okay. is a, there's an entire long, you know, thousands year long history. But the of, fact that it was included in the first place doesn't that suggest to you that this was kind of a, a merely human enterprise and not a matter of being the no, perfect suggest, word. No, it suggests no. What it suggests to me. I mean, Let's run through some common defenses of biblical slavery. Number one, slavery was different in the Bible. Biblical slavery was not the same as chattel slavery in the American South. Well, is it the kind where you own human beings as property? Because that's what makes it wrong. And the answer is yes, slaves can be bought and sold and inherited as property in the Bible. Number two, you're taking it out of context. So, in what context is owning another person as property a good thing? And sure, let's open up our Bibles and take a look at the context. Do you really think that what's in the surrounding pages is exculpatory? Also, why are you never concerned about the context of anything that doesn't sound bad? It's almost like you've decided ahead of time that this must be a good book, regardless of its actual contents. If slavery doesn't convince you, I mean, what else would I have to show you out of this book to change your mind? Out of the mouth of God himself, you can own lifelong slaves as property. Number three, the Bible places restrictions on slavery. You'd only regulate something that needs to be contained. To quote Alex O'Connor, the only appropriate regulation on slavery is its abolition. Anything less than this, at the very least, demonstrates that God doesn't feel as strongly about it as he does, say, divorce or adultery. End quote. There are Bible verses that regulate slavery and set limits on what you can do to your slaves. There are restrictions on how severely you're allowed to beat them, which is pretty severely, it turns out. The rules regarding assault were different for non-slaves, which means slaves were second- or third-class citizens and treated as lesser humans. 
In fact, there were different rules about slavery for Hebrews and non-Hebrews. There were different laws for different groups. And yet, Ben Shapiro loves to say that the Bible doesn't treat you differently, quote, based on group identity. The defense of biblical slavery usually involves pointing to laws that only applied to Jews. I mean, just really appreciate this fact. The laws were different depending on your ethnicity. There were different laws for different ethnic groups. Maybe Western civilization was built on Judeo-Christian values after all. Number four. It was a different historical era. Slavery pervaded the ancient world. It was a different time. So whether or not slavery is wrong depends on what year it is. You would say that slavery was right for one decade and wrong for the next, or right for one culture and wrong for another. That's a fairly clear endorsement of relativism, if you ask me. It's relative to the time and culture whether something is morally right or wrong. I love how Christians all become relativists as soon as they realize you're morally evaluating the Bible. It's also worth noting that the defense of it pervaded ancient culture. Everyone was doing it at the time. That would mean the Bible was a product of the time and culture, and not the product of a divine being who transcends cultural morality. Related to it was a different time is number five. This was all under the Old Covenant. This is arguably an endorsement of relativism as well, though it would not be correct to say that moral values depended on the culture or the time. The Old Covenant and New Covenant both get their authority from God. God is the moral standard in both cases. But the objectivity is still questionable. There was one set of rules in the year 20, and a different set of moral rules for the people of 40 CE. If morality flows from God's nature, ultimately, then did his nature change? If not, why did the rules change? I thought the rules were based on his nature. If the rules changed, and the rules are based on his nature, that would imply that his nature changed. I thought God's nature was immutable. Moreover, if God's nature changed, and especially if you consider the New Testament to be an improvement upon the Old, God must not have been morally perfect to begin with. Number six, God only inspired the Bible, you see. All the bad stuff is from the influence of people. Is the Bible the word of God or not? And what's your criteria for determining whether or not something in the Bible is inspired by God or humans? Whether or not it's good? Again, it's almost like you've decided ahead of time that this is a good book, and your belief is entirely unresponsive to evidence. And by what standard are you going through the Bible and saying, there's a good part, there's a bad part, this one must be from God, and this one must be from humans? Clearly there's some standard that you're already working with. Plus, in Leviticus chapter 25, 44 through 46, it's God speaking directly to Moses. He says, quote, Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. They will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life. Thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, used to be considered the motto of Satanism, as I recall. Is it not said of God's chosen people, and is it not said to, uh, to them by God in the Pentateuch that they can do exactly as they like to other people? They can enslave them, 
They can help themselves to all their virtues. They can do what anyone who had no sense of anything but their, their own rights would be able to do, but in this case with divine permission. People keep, you keep hearing how many abolitionists were Christians. Well, it was about time that they took a stand against it, having mandated it for so long. Given only faith, mountains can be moved, and millions of people who would never normally acquiesce in evil are brought to it straight away and with ease and with self-righteousness. It's interesting to note that American slave owners used the Bible to justify their practices. Theologically, they were on sounder footing than the abolitionists. But the fact that both sides could invoke the Bible doesn't mean it's a wash for religion. The fact that the Bible can be manipulated to be both for and against slavery does not make religion a neutral force. Quite the contrary. It's a huge strike against Christianity and religion in general. What does it say about the moral worth of the Bible that it can be easily made to condemn and endorse the same institution? As Abraham Lincoln pointed out, quote, Both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. Hmm, that sounds like something a non-believer might say. We've been addressing it as we go along, but two of the most common talking points on biblical slavery is that it was, quote-unquote, voluntary and temporary. It was voluntary means of working off debt. In the Hebrew culture, slavery was primarily volitional. In essence, it was the first type of bankruptcy law for this time-limited service where if you were in debt, you could sell yourself to a master for a time. And you know what? After six years, they were set free. Slaves or people who were in debt could work off their debt in a safe and loving environment. It was not perpetual is the other thing worth pointing out. Uh, so it didn't transcend generations. To the extent that this is true, it's only true for Hebrew slaves. Like I said, different laws for different group identities. God himself, in Leviticus chapter 25, says that you can take lifelong slaves, so not temporary, who can be inherited as property or born into their slavery, so not voluntary and also multi-generational. And by slavery, we mean owning human beings as property. It's really that simple. It's extremely frustrating to me when apologists try to make slavery sound like it wasn't so bad, at least not as bad as American slavery, but it's also a lie. Just like claiming biblical slavery was voluntary and temporary is just a lie. It was brutal. And even if it wasn't, think about what they're saying. Slavery is acceptable if it doesn't include beatings and rape and kidnapping. If that's not what you mean, then what is your point? And you absolutely were allowed to rape your slaves. In fact, they took virgin girls as part of the spoils of war. And you were allowed to beat your slaves viciously, as long as you didn't take out an eye or kill them. And of course, we all knew it was coming to this. Number seven, you're saying slavery is wrong. Well, by what standard? We should take a moment to zoom out and realize that the same people who are defending slavery are simultaneously presuming they have the moral high ground. Why, in the 21st century, are there people arguing about slavery as we have been? Well, it's a one-word answer, and I'll give you a hint. It starts with the letter R, ends with religion. To quote Steven Weinberg, With or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, 
that takes religion. End quote. The people who we're arguing with, the ones who are defending the Bible on this subject, are not bad people. That's what makes religion so dangerous. It takes normal people and makes them say things and do things that they would never say or do if not for religion. These people are not monsters. They're morally normal people who are under the sway of religion. So, slavery is wrong by what standard? Slavery is wrong by all kinds of standards. By my standards, for instance. I don't care what the Bible says. I think slavery is wrong. It's also wrong by the standard of human rights, to give another example. It's wrong by Kant's categorical imperative. And we could go on. There are plenty of standards by which slavery is unacceptable. One standard by which it's perfectly acceptable is divine command theory, provided that God commanded it. And in Leviticus, the Judeo-Christian God did. Of course, no matter what answer you give, they'll always push the problem another step back. Sure, it's wrong because of suffering, but why is suffering bad? The problem is that there must be some basic moral beliefs, beliefs that you can't get underneath. If you're asking why something is wrong, or why you should or shouldn't do something, there will eventually be an end to that chain of justification. And there's nothing wrong with that. You don't need any further justification to make it reasonable to take an aspirin for a headache, or to listen to a song that you like, or to refrain from putting your hand on a hot stove. Chains of justification have to end somewhere. To say otherwise would lead to an infinite regress of justifications. To quote Thomas Nagel, Even if someone wished to supply a further justification for pursuing all the things in life that are commonly regarded as self-justifying, that justification would have to end somewhere too. If nothing can justify, unless it is justified in terms of something outside itself, which is also justified, then an infinite regress results, and no chain of justification can be complete. End quote. Believers mistakenly think that they're immune to this problem because of God. God is where the chain of justification ends, and that's somehow better than the chain ending at suffering of conscious creatures or something like that. But we all have basic moral beliefs that aren't justified by some other belief. All of us, theists included. Subscribers to divine command theory simply believe that God's command is the moral foundation that needs no further justification. Violating God's command is inherently bad. I say suffering is inherently bad, just by virtue of its nature, and they say disobeying God is inherently bad. Not sure why their answer is considered morally superior, but at this point, when the believer says God is the ultimate standard of right and wrong, then we can bring up Euthyphro's dilemma one of the most ancient and most formidable problems for divine command theory. Does God command something because it's good, or is it good because God commands it? Bringing up the slavery in the Bible is emotionally compelling. It seems like such a clear instance of something that everyone should condemn. Obviously, we wouldn't expect a book that's been hailed as the good book to endorse slavery. We should note, however, that biblical slavery is not a point against God's existence. At best, this is an argument against the moral authority of the Bible. It's not really even an argument against God's goodness, because if you subscribe to divine command theory, Euthyphro's dilemma aside, there's no problem here. God is the standard, 
If he commands it, it's good by definition, even if it involves owning human beings as property, or genociding the whole world except a handful of people, or human sacrifice. For Christians, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. We should expect it to be morally perfect, so anything other than an unequivocal condemnation of owning other people as property is something that needs an explanation. And I think the atheist explanation is far more convincing than the weak apologetics were being offered. We would expect the Bible to be morally timeless on Christianity. We wouldn't exactly expect the Word of God to age poorly. For naturalists, the Bible is a historically and culturally significant document, but crucially, it's man-made. And as is the case with Greek mythology, Shakespeare, and Kurt Vonnegut, we can study it, quote it as we like, and even treasure it without imbuing the book with mystical properties. It's a book written by humans, and we no more need to defend its contents than any other historical document. As Hitchens put it, the Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre, but we are not bound by any of it, because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. That's all I have for you today. And I have a new patron to thank, Fred Nietzsche. Thanks, Fred. I'm a big fan. And I'd like to thank Emily for giving a one-time donation. Thank you, Emily. And any way you can support the podcast and the time I put into it is a big help. And speaking of that, I'd like to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to declare your allegiance to the Behooved One, you can like us on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of Walden Pod, our sister show. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.